0: Pullman National Monument in Chicago, Illinois, with your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes.
1: We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural, economic development, i.e. tourism, and we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. In the tradition of this program, live from the Pullman National Monument, we've established coming on explaining to you, the listening audience, about the Pullman National Monument. Because the Pullman National Monument is so new, there's still lots of questions about it. What is it? Where is it? What are the boundary lines? And what does it actually mean, since it is the first national park in the city of Chicago? Well, the Pullman National Monument is different from most national monuments in that it is not just a single building. The Pullman National Monument is a thematic district. The themes for the National Pullman National Monument are labor and architectural history, uh, the The town is famous for its queen and eighteenth century nineteenth century uh, architecture. The town was built by George Pullman, who was the owner, creator, founder of the Pullman Railcar Company. Mr. Pullman built the town for the people who worked for him, well most of the people who worked for him. He built a town to provide housing for the people who worked in the factory. They were carpenters, cabinet makers, machinists, that kind of thing. And he wanted to build housing for them because he wanted to ensure that they had a place to live that was close to his factory in that he was a very astute businessman. And so providing housing or his employees that was steps from his factory, meant that he could always count on his employees being at work and on time. But Mr. Pullman had two categories of employees. He had those uh, employees that I just named for you, and he also had African-American railroad employees who were the onboard crew for the Pullman Railroad Car Company. They did not live in the Pullman Company because they were African Americans and because of the racial climate and conditions of that time, they could not live in Pullman. So the people who worked as the onboard crew at, for the Pullman Company lived in a community in the city of Chicago known as Bronzeville. So... The the connection for African-Americans to the Pullman National Monument is that they worked for the company that was located in the Pullman National Monument, but the recognition for the people who were working for the Pullman Company as the onboard crew, most specifically the ones that have the claim to fame are the ones that brought the most distinction and those who uh, created history with the Pullman Company were the Pullman Porters, who later became known as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. They were the formulators of the first African American labor union in the country. They were the first to win a collective bargaining agreement with a major U.S. corporation, which happened to be the Pullman Company. And so that is the significance for labor history for the Pullman community or the Pullman National Monument. Most specifically, it is the black labor history connection for the Pullman National Monument. President Barack Obama designated the Pullman National Monument, the community of Pullman, as a Pullman National Monument in February of 2015. And so we are basically catching up, if you will. There were a number of entities, we were already here, already doing what we do, each of us in our own respective niches, before President Obama designated the area. Case in point, there is the Historic Pullman Foundation, who operates a house tour, an annual house tour, and they have been doing that i believe for 40 years and it is well attended well established and quite successful they are housed at the pullman visitor center that is at 111th and cottage grove then there is the pullman factory which is most famously referred to as the pullman clock tower that That is the building that was the site of the Pullman factory where they actually made uh, the train cars, and it was the offices of the Pullman company. They are also uh, at 111th and Cottage Grove. That particular property is now owned by the state of Illinois and has been, I believe, for maybe 10 years uh, but that building is not open to the public on a daily basis. You Visitors may go to that factory and tour the building by appointment only. The Historic Pullman Foundation, which is at 112th and Cottage Grove, is currently shared with uh, or shared by the National Park Service, and the Historic Pullman Foundation. The National Park Service is currently working uh, on building or building out their visitor center, which will become the official visitor center for the Pullman National Monument, and it will be physically located in the Pullman Clock Tower. But until they finish, they are currently sharing the space at the Pullman Visitor Center, which is which is at 112th and Cottage Grove. I'm not sure what the name is going to be once they finish because you won't be able to have two visitor centers, but but that is where they are physically operating out of now. Then you have the Hotel Florence. It was the hotel that was uh, in place for people who came to visit Pullman. Uh, It is now under construction, and we are still not clear what that's going to be, uh, you can visit that as well by appointment only. Then there is the greenstone church. the greenstone church has a history uh its significance is that is because of the bricks are green limestone that were that was distinctive at the time, and apparently it still is That's number one. The second thing is because of the organ that is there, which apparently has um, major significance. And then, of course, there's the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, of which I happen to have the honor of being the founder. It is a 22-year-old African-American labor history museum. And while it is small in size, the the historic significance uh, has national acclaim in that it is the first... African-American labor history in the U.S. It is the only one of its kind worldwide, and it has been in operation for two years, and the museum is open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 11 to 4, and the admission is $5. I make a point of saying that because all of the buildings that I named in this discussion are owned by the state or the federal government, and so they do not charge uh, an admission because they don't have to. We're not in that capacity yet. We do not have a written agreement with the federal government that would allow us to have a free admission, but we're working on it. We have one new restaurant. It's called the Pullman Cafe. It is at 113th and Champlain. So I hope that that uh, provides you, the listening audience, with the kind of information that you need uh, for your visiting of the Pullman National Monument. Each of the entities that I make reference to has their own individual websites, and you can follow them. But of course... You can visit the A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, uh, and the information that I have provided for you is displayed there on each entity under Pullman National Monument. So I hope that that provides you with information that you need that will help better help you understand what about what's going on with the Pullman National Monument. We are going to take a quick break and come right back with our first guest.
0: Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Around the Museum Table. And we are very pleased today to have with us our guest, our distinguished guest, (laughs) Mr. Alan C. Lowe. He is the executive director of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. And as you know, this show is all about tourism. And we like to think that we bring to you, the listening audience, guests from around the world who fit into the envelope of tourism, which is where we are. And this show, we like to highlight tourist sites around the world because this show is an Internet uh, international internet talk radio show focused on tourism. And so we have listeners around the world. And so by introducing or highlighting guests from around the world, we have the, the pleasure of introducing people around the world to different places throughout the world where they may be at any given time on vacation or business and have the opportunity to visit places of culture enlightenment and education. And so, Mr. Lowe happens to be in that envelope, and we are just delighted to have him with us today. He has a very, very impressive resume, and we are very honored uh, and proud to have him with us today. And so, one of the things that we want to, to, to focus on is, or to highlight on, is some of his, uh, his uh, background uh, that prepared him for this job that he has that's new for him, actually. Uh, he was, before he came to, Sh- to uh, Springfield, Illinois, for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Center and um, um, Presidential Library and Museum, He was the founding director of the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. And his role there was that he managed all aspects of the library and the museum's operations uh, and was part of a team that oversaw the design construction of the library and museums. And one of the things that that, that is similar the similarities in his work uh, at that museum, and where he is now, that we noted as we looked at his bio, is he he um oversaw elements of the agents all elements of the agency's operation. And part of that that caught our eye was the interest in engaging the community or educating the communities wherever he happened to be. And that was something that caught our eye. And so having said that, I'm going to back out the door now <laughs> and, and allow uh, Mr. Lowe to come in and and say, uh, Alan, welcome to the show.
0: Dr. Hughes, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Well, what I- we this, this show is very informal. Yeah. So what we'd like to do is just to sort of hand you the mic, so to speak, okay. and, and allow you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background your work and that kind of thing and we'll go from there how about that
0: of course glad to do it glad to do it i i uh i grew up in kentucky and i uh, got my uh, master's degree in history at the university of kentucky so i'm still a a wildcat through and through i'm afraid and uh and i didn't <laughs> know what i wanted to do next i thought i might go on uh, to get my doctorate and teach I, I wasn't quite sure and i i frankly i lucked into a job i put some resumes out and lucked into a job at at uh, the Ronald Reagan Library uh, in, uh, at that point in Los Angeles, California. They had just moved the materials uh, from the Reagan White House out to the uh, a temporary facility in Los Angeles, and they hired me to be an archivist there. And I really didn't know much about the Presidential Library and Museum world. I knew nothing about it, but uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired in 1989 to go out there and start working and immediately loved loved the mission of the Presidential Libraries and Museums. And of course, that library was under construction then, the permanent library for Reagan, and we later dedicated that up in Simi Valley, just northwest of LA, a beautiful place. And I was there about uh, three years as an archivist and learned a lot, uh, and then got the opportunity to go back to Washington, to the Central Office of Presidential Libraries, for those libraries that are overseen by the National Archives, um, and went back there, and that was the best schoolhouse possible. I. I was kind of thrown into the deep water, Uh, a very small central office. And I had to learn uh, not just access issues for the archives, but things like uh, contracts and personnel and facilities and all those things. I was constantly on the road uh, going around the country to different libraries within the National Archives system, helping take care of issues, helping to advocate for those libraries. And uh, like I say, it was the best uh, educational experience I could have had to be put in a leadership position at one of them someday. And during that time in Washington, I was there 11 years in the central office. I also was asked for just about a year of that, uh, concurrent with my other duties, uh, to serve as the acting director of the Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum up in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, So I did that great experience, uh, really the first presidential library. Uh, FDR realized that uh, For presidents before him. Oftentimes, the collections were scattered, um, and he wanted to to keep all of his archives in one place and build a museum alongside of it to help educate folks and uh, to bring in tourists and those types of things. So he did that, and all the presidents after him followed suit. So I did that for about a year. Um, Then after that 11 years in D.C., I got out of the presidential uh, world for a little while and went to Knoxville, Tennessee, and helped found, as the founding executive director, the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy at the University of Tennessee, and a great experience. Uh, Howard Baker was a a good man. As you may recall, he was Senate Minority and Majority Leader. Uh, He was vice chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee. Uh, Later in his career, he was White House Chief of Staff for President Reagan. And when I uh, started in, in Knoxville, he was ambassador to Japan for President George W. Bush, Uh, So we created a public policy center for him in Knoxville that in many ways ways was like a presidential library, uh, but very connected to a university. So we did, in addition to museum and archival functions, a lot of educational functions, and uh, a whole heck of a lot of research uh, with different partners at the university, Oak Ridge National Lab, and other places. Uh, So did that, loved that, had a dedicated facility built on campus. We raised money for that, and uh, I'm really proud of it. Uh, but then after six years there, I got the call from the White House uh, about the George W. Bush Library. They were just uh, they just moved the materials out to Texas and wanted to know if I wanted to be director there. Um, I always tell uh, folks here, if you think you're inter- uh, nervous in an interview, my final interview for that job was in the Oval Office with President and Mrs. Bush. Uh, thankfully, they were very nice people and uh, joked with me, and, uh, and I managed to do well enough, uh, thankfully, to get the job and start it there in 2009 uh, as director of the George W. Bush Library uh, and Museum, Uh, first at a temporary facility in Louisville, Texas, while we designed and built the the building, and then down in Dallas on the campus of SMU once we dedicated that facility. Uh, I thought I'd probably stay there until I retired, Um, really uh, liked Dallas, but then I got the call in 2016 about the executive director position at the Lincoln Library Museum in Springfield. Abraham Lincoln had always been my hero. I say my first uh, uh, political memory is is uh, historical memory is going to his birthplace in Kentucky when I was a kid, um, and I've read incessantly about him, so i could not uh, I could not turn that down. It was a great opportunity and started here in July of uh, two thousand and sixteen so just under two years now in Springfield um, I've had many great opportunities along the way in the archives and museum world i I went to Senator Baker, for example, I was uh, president of the Uh, Association of Senators for the Study of Congress, and was on the advisory committee to the records of Congress for Senate Majority Leader Frist. So really dove into the world of of congressional records uh, uh, and then have had so many other great opportunities. You you talked about community engagement, and that's been so central uh, to what I think our core mission in all these institutions. How do we connect with those communities in education and public programs and just outreach? How do we make sure we're a Um, a a cultural kind of beacon for that community of where folks can go, where they can bring friends and family, where they know that there's a a quality institution there in their community helping enrich that community, and we in turn are enriched by them. So I've done a lot in that regard at every institution where I've worked, and I, I agree with you that it is absolutely central to our missions.
1: You know, one of the things, I'm so happy that you zeroed in on that. <clears throat> one of the things that I see, and and I guess I don't do a very good job, or maybe I don't have the capability of doing a, a good job explaining that or getting that across to people, in my other job in addition to being the host of this wonderful show on BBS Radio is to I happen to be the founder um, of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, and 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 we we just celebrated our twenty third birthday. But one of the things I think the biggest challenge for me has been and continues to be how do we how do we convey to people, those in government and those in the community, that we are, we see ourselves as being, and indeed we are, stakeholders, that we are there to serve the community in any number of ways. And, and I, I may have mentioned this before, but one of the things that Ford Bell said before he retired from the American Alliance of Museums what that his his quote was museums are people don't really see it that way but museums are places of education and that's number 1 number 2 is that museums role the role of museums has changed in the last 10 12 years and that we have to step outside of the walls of where we are. We, we have to do more with less, but we have to m- help people in the community to understand that we are there as an informal education, an, an informal educational place where they can come and bring family and friends and if, in an informal setting or to be able to delve into education through the research of that that specific facility. But what happens is that government sometimes, and it doesn't always work, most of this, this is <laughs> terrible, but it doesn't, it doesn't always work because what happens is government then, Gets into the business of politicizing who you are and what you do, and it absolutely destroys the intentionality of what you, you, the institution, want to do and view your role as being. That's just my opinion.
0: Well, I'll tell you. You know, you, you ask, you know, how how best to do it. And I think um, there are lots of lots of possible answers to that. One is. And I think I know you've done this, and we, we certainly do that here. I've done it everywhere. Is First of all, you kind of seek those those partners and those champions of your institution, and that's a beginning place, right? So I know I'm doing it here at Lincoln of, you know, looking in this community and throughout the state and around of who are, who are those partners that are obvious good partners for us where we need to say, let's work together. And then by working with them, you reach the audiences they've reached, and maybe you haven't, and then you... Work with partners or the partners, right? And you keep growing that out, mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. realize there's a lot of strength in in working together. And for me, also of, of looking to mentors of you know people who have done a really good job at that before. How did they How did they do it? Um, and I, I talk a lot here about best practices and uh, looking at those in all aspects of our library and our museum. But certainly, of how you engage a community that's something we're thinking more and more about about how are good institutions doing that and and then, you know, um, sometimes you, you do it by doing it, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm a real fan of saying, okay, we, we're going to do X. Now let's have a specific project that's tied to that that shows people. Maybe they don't understand uh, what we do or how we can be helpful in education. Uh, let's show them that. Let's, and, and slowly but surely it dawns on them that, that that is part of what you do and part of your core mission. Um, you know, I was a senator. Baker. One of my favorite things we did there was a subunit of our our center was called the Center for Civic Engagement, and we reached out to schools and to civic groups and worked a lot with them on on civic social studies education that type of thing and how we could engage with high school students and also the college students there at U- University of Tennessee. And that was probably the most rewarding part of that work. And here, you know, we bring sixty to seventy thousand school kids through every year. We get about 300,000 people through our museum galleries every year, and 60 to 70,000 of those are in organized school groups. Uh, so we are an educational force in that way, but then what else can we do? How can we get out into schools with my education staff? How can, how can we get materials there? How can we help teachers with their training? We do teacher workshops. We create curriculum. Uh, but even then, how do we make sure teachers are using the materials, that they're useful to them, that they know these workshops are available? How do we get a broader appeal around Illinois, around the nation? Uh, all these things are things we're thinking about right now.
1: Well, you just said some very interesting things that will be um, helpful, very helpful, I think. Um, but, but, but I also want to say, when, when you have visitors... It's important, uh, which is why I keep zeroing in on that, and I continually come back to the, the, the conversation. When you have visitors, and, and we, we have, over the last couple of years, our international visitorship has probably tripled. Yeah. And one of the things that I notice. And sometimes you learn things just by through observation or just by overhearing a conversation just because you happen to be standing next to someone or, you know, in close proximity and you to that conversation where that conversation is being held but but just from the experience of of interacting with and, and listening to the conversations of the international visitors that have frequented our place i'm convinced that there's all the more reason why those elements that you mentioned about looking for champions in the community and, and, you know, the development of, which is a genius idea, developing that center for civic engagement and making sure the teachers have materials. All of those things work in concert, Mm -hmm. and they all play a major role. And so when you have visitors who come from London or Asia and that kind of thing, and then they're inter—they're having conversation among themselves in the group that they arrived with, and you—they and make comments about, say, other sites in the area that they have been to, to. and yeah. don't you think for one moment that they have not paid attention to whether or not. The, for the lack of a better expression that you you are one and 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 by that I mean we are uh, in in Chicago Illinois in- and we are part of the National Park Service Pullman National Monument within that monument there are maybe six or seven places where visitors can go yeah i think that we we in the monument could do a much better job presenting uh, for the lack of a better phrase, a united front in that to give get, to give the impression to the visitor that we're all working closely together, that we're doing all of these wonderful things together, and the commonality of what we do is to make the visitorship uh, make the visit a v- the best visit visitor experience that visitors can have. And I, I think without in the absence of of that concerted effort to to present us as a unit and not individual uh, comes across to the visitor that and you don't even know that it's coming across unless you happen to overhear a conversation. does that make sense?
0: It does. And, you know, we're we're thinking about those very things. So within kind of the, the Lincoln world around Springfield, around central Illinois, uh, there's the Lincoln National Heritage Area. And Sarah Watson is the head of that. She does what's called looking for Lincoln. And we, we work with them because we agree that, that there should be kind of a combined effort. Uh, we should all be working together. Beyond Lincoln, uh, within Illinois, I know you and I have discussed which, where I'm and reaching out to our tourism people of how we better coordinate what we're doing here with sites around Illinois and then how they're marketing Illinois to the nation and to the world. And then also groups like the Illinois Association of Museums, I'm on the board of that group, and and then how do we get the museums around the state knowing what we're doing and finding those connection points where they exist so that we do support one another um, international, I think that's that's a big topic for us here. Obviously, President Lincoln has a great international reach. Um, and we're, we're seeing now, you know, how, how best do you utilize that? I reached out to a good friend of mine. Um, when I was with Senator Baker, I made a connection with Cambridge University, the Churchill Archive Center. A fellow named Alan Packwood leads that up in, in, in England. And uh, we did some programming together when I was in Knoxville. Now we're talking about how do we bring Churchill and Lincoln together here in Illinois and, you know, maybe do a conference, maybe do some educational materials together, connect the collections together that we have. We have uh, Lincoln collections. We have uh, amazing Illinois collections. We're also the Illinois State Historical Library. Uh, but uh, Alan Packwood at the Churchill Archive Center has things like Churchill's papers, Margaret Thatcher's papers, John Major's papers. So this really, uh, how do you connect those collections so that across the Atlantic, we're working together? And Uh, So then you have educational um, uh, connection, you have, uh, you know, different products, but then you also are stimulating, I think, tourism. And we know we get a lot of people from the U.K. already. We'd like to get more. I think that making those kind of partnerships there will only be helpful in that regard.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We should – And I'm just—I've just inserted myself. We, <laughs> we, we, we really should do initiate some of those things. And I would like to offer us uh, the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porting Museum. I would like to offer us as a, um, a site or the 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 person who begins to. Uh, make that happen on our end and work closely uh, with an entity that would emerge to do just that very thing because it would just do my heart good to know that it actually was beginning <laughs> begin, <laughs> beginning to happen and that I was honored uh, in a way, in, in, even in a small way. Of participating in that to making sure that that came to fruition, I would love, love, love to do that. And as you were talking, I was hearing some things and possibilities, um, ideas that we could talk about. Of course, uh, off the air, but but I would love to do that. One of the things that that one of the things that um, I heard you say that two or three times in this conversation is the importance of the connection to university Mm -hmm. now in 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 Chicago we have lots of wonderful universities but there's a state university right there and very close to the Pullman National Monument Chicago State University Mm -hmm. And, and and so I would think that maybe maybe some Mentoring, if you will, uh, yeah. or tutoring, if you will, from outside sources like a you and us to to help them to see the importance of a role that they could play in, in 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 developing that kind of partnerships. maybe they're not big on research but but there are other sources that could help them realize or recognize that that's an asset and there's got to be some, Some ground zero place that we could begin to help develop that.
0: I I think when you have those those uh, connections with good schools. I mean, uh, here we have a lot of folks we work with. University of Illinois Springfield is terrific, and we've been talking to the chancellor there about what specific projects can we do together to cement our connection. At Bush, we had SMU. We were on the campus of Southern Methodist University, an amazing institution. Uh, And then at, you know, Baker, uh, we had uh, University of Tennessee at at, uh, FDR. We worked a lot with Marist. Uh, So always, how do you reach out to them? First of all, how do you reach out to those classrooms, that that faculty, to get your resources to them to see how you can mentor and help? But also, it goes the other way. You know, at at the Baker Center, I think uh, uh, another great thing we did, I'm very proud of these guys, we created the Baker Scholars. And these were students at the University of Tennessee. It became a very competitive process to be a Baker Scholar. We didn't give them any money. We had no money to give them, but, but they they were able to get the title and they worked with us. Uh, and they helped create programs and partnerships. So they would come to me with conference ideas. And I would say, you know, uh, I've thought about it. That's a great conference idea. Make, make it happen. And then so they would get into the specifics of how you organize a conference. Of course, we'd help them out. But but uh, it, it gave them kind of a great training, great experience, um, and they were an integral part of our operations. Uh, we couldn't have done what we did without those Baker Scholars. So, uh, so it kind of goes both ways. You can help them, uh, but they certainly can help you as well.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm Well, this is uh, – we went down a path that I had not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's my every day, right? <laughs>
1: One of the things that I I would like for us to touch on a, a bit is the experience of visiting the a, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, Library and Museum. What what is the experience like for visitors, tourists who come?
0: Sure, uh, sure. What, so, you know, uh,
1: can we do that?
0: Absolutely, please, please. Yes, I would love to love to tell everyone about it and. In our museum, uh, we have amazing permanent exhibits. We call them Journey 1 and Journey 2. And and I think when people come here, the first thing they realize is that it's an amazingly immersive experience, the way it's designed. It's a very moving experience. I'm I'm moved every time I go through, and I've been through it, you know, a thousand times now. Um, The first journey starts with uh, Lincoln as a young man in the cabin. You know, he was born in poverty in Kentucky, moved to Indiana as a young man. And, and really, if you, you know, betting people would have said he would have lived his life out on a farm, I had less than a year of education in his entire life. And uh, so he's, he did not start out with money. And we show that, that kind of uh, humble beginning. Uh, and then we show his ascent, uh, his moving to Illinois, uh, striking out on his own in the village of New Salem in Illinois, where he, you know, he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do with his life. So a store owner. He was a postmaster. He was a surveyor. Uh, and he finally realized uh, he, uh, he wanted to try the law. And then they almost immediately got into politics. But then even in politics, had many uh, disappointments along the way. And we show that story in journey one, him meeting Mary and becoming a successful lawyer, state legislator uh, here, in, here in Springfield, and then uh, a one term in Congress, a uh, very successful Whig politician kind of making his way up the Latter, but uh, again, many points along there where you don't know for sure if maybe that's the end of his political career. Uh, so uh, we take that first journey up to the momentous election of 1860 using some really uh, interesting, cool technology and immersive environments. And and then you leave journey one after he's been elected president. Then go across our great plaza where we have this amazing Lincoln family staying in. It's a wonderful photo op. And you go into journey two, which is the Lincolns uh, you know, going into the White House in the midst of the uh, worst crisis this nation's ever faced uh, with the secession of the southern states, the bombardment of Fort Sumter uh, and the beginning of the Civil War. And we have this a gallery called the Whispering Gallery, which I think is it's, it's many people's favorite part of the museum, where you see these uh, cartoons from the time attacking Lincoln. And you realize, as much as he's venerated now... He was attacked viciously by his critics then. And uh, you see we have the, some of the quotes being whispered as you walk through. It's a very uh, striking, almost disorienting space, but uh, I think very educational space as you go through it. Um, we talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, the move toward emancipation, and all the conflicting views that the president was given on that until he finally uh, he he made that very important decision uh, that issued in 1863. We have an amazing video about the war that's called "The Civil War in Four Minutes," uh, where you can see on the big screen the changing tide of the war, the different the borders between the Union and the Confederacy, and the mounting casualties are shown on the lower right-hand part of the screen. Um, We uh, talk about you know the Gettysburg Address, arguably the most important speech in American history, Uh, and then the end of the war, the, the 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 victory the success of the Union, the 13th Amendment, the abolishment of slavery, uh, and then you walk into a a recreation of Ford's Theater, and you you see the assassin uh, sneaking into the booth, sadly. And right after that, we talk about the funeral train, um, the funeral um, here in Springfield, the final uh, resting spot of of President Lincoln. And then you leave leave that gallery. Uh, And then there's another gallery called the Treasures Gallery, where we bring out items from our from our collections, we have the largest collection of Lincoln and Mary Lincoln letters in the world. Amazing artifacts. We have, for example, one of his stovepipe hats. We have a handwritten Gettysburg Address written written by Abraham Lincoln. Thirteenth uh, Amendment uh, signed by Lincoln and all the members of Congress who voted for it. We have a, uh, a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation signed by Lincoln. Uh, sadly, we have things like uh, the gloves that were in his pocket the night he was assassinated, with his blood still on them. Uh, just, it goes on and on, and those items are often brought up into that treasurer's gallery. Uh, and then I, I can't leave out, we also have two great theaters. Uh, Lincoln's Eyes is a great kind of uh, very uh, immersive environment uh, where you go through his life story. Then another uh, theater has, is called Ghost of the Library. Uh, where are using really advanced technology. We talk about why these presidential libraries are important, the stories they tell, the materials they hold. Uh, so that's that's our permanent exhibit. Our guests uh, always love it. We get great reviews. Uh, we also have special exhibits every year, a holiday exhibit plus another major exhibit throughout the year. We just opened one uh, on March 23rd of this year called uh, "From Illinois to the White House: Lincoln, Grant, Reagan, and Obama" uh, in honor of Illinois's bicentennial. Talking about those four men with deep deep ties to the Prairie State Uh, and that topic changes every year. We're planning for the next three or four years what to do in that gallery. So that's what uh, folks will see when they come here. We also have Union Station on our campus right across our our park where uh, a great uh, historic uh, railroad uh, uh, depot that's part of our campus where right now we have exhibits from the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln and then those will be changing out over time as well on our campus and then our library of course uh, has a variety of things we show there as well. Uh, it's, it's on our campus as well, where we hold those collections, we have a great reading room there, a uh, conservation lab, all those collections, eight miles worth of shelving that hold our collections in the basement of the library. It's really a pretty awesome sight to see, So, there's, uh, and we do a ton of public and educational programming too throughout the year, speakers, conferences, workshops, those types of things. So it's a very busy, active place.
1: wanted to ask the question. I didn't want to interrupt you. The no, Treasury okay. I get Gallery. I on a roll. It's
0: hard to stop me. Right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Treasury Gallery. Yeah. You you bring items out from the collection mm-hmm. and put them in a place that people can see up that's close. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I bet that's yeah. a... Uh,
0: yeah, we, oh. we change those out. Of course, we change out the artifacts in the permanent galleries, Journeys 1 and 2 as well on a pretty regular basis. But the Treasurer's Gallery allows us to bring them, you know, bring out even more. Uh, so there's an out, outer ring and an inner inner ring. And the inner ring is where we often have <coughs> the, the most, uh, you know, treasured items. Uh, so when we do show the hat or the Gettysburg address, that's where we'll do that. The outer ring, still very important items. So we'll put other things out there. And, and what we now started doing is in the outer ring uh, during November and December and early January, that's where we'll put our holiday exhibit as well. So uh, we borrow stuff from other presidential libraries, showing how uh, various presidents and first families have celebrated the holidays. But on a normal day like today, or in that outer circle, just the various treasures from our from our collections.
1: That's wonderful. I I want to. We everyone who comes, we sort of ask the same question, and the answers. Or it's a common thread, but they they're very similar in in the genesis of of uh, the the response. Can you tell us what you your opinion is of the importance of museums in communities?
0: All right, it's um, you know I could talk for the next uh, week on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they are. Um, Vital to the life of a community, they they give so much in terms of the cultural uh, life of that community, uh, kind of a dynamism to the community. Uh, they are an educational force. Uh, when you know when we an institution like this, not only coming here but going out in the community, they are an educational force. They are an economic force. Uh, the the tourists we bring in. Uh, you know the hotel rooms, the restaurants around here, the business we do here—definitely an economic force as well. Uh, they are, a, um, a for, uh, an, uh, I guess, a force to bring a community together too. So they, they are a convening place. They are uh, so a convening place, a learning place, an inspirational place, um, a tourism center. All these, all, all the above, I think, make us uh, very important. Um, and so when you, when you look at the richness of a community, when I look at not only places I want to visit, but places I want to live, I want to see what kind of museums and libraries they have, because then I know that is a, a dynamic, vibrant community.
1: Now, this is, this is going back, touching on, because you, you, you've certainly been in the environment enough to know how uh, politics impacts Uh, these kinds of places, what would you say, if you were to be able to give advice, what would you say would be the, the, the one thing, or maybe two, that institutions like museums could do to help politicians understand the importance and the significance of museums, what they mean to a community?
0: I think uh, uh, these are, I I know, pretty basic, but number one is engage them. Uh, We have to reach out to our our public servants and say, please come see us. Please come talk to us. Please come see what we're doing and, you know, keep them apprised of what we're doing because they have a lot on their plates, right? So we just need to make sure they understand what our mission is, why we're here, what we're doing, Uh, and don't hide uh, what good you're doing, you know. uh, Uh, it's easy for folks in in the rush of things to not quite understand uh, the full breadth of of what you're doing and why it's important. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you you have to kind of be your own advocate and say, hey, you know, uh, like we said earlier, this is why museums are important. This is why, frankly, this museum is important (laughs) or this library. Uh, These are the things we do, and you keep that constant communication and engagement going is is the, the number one thing you have to do.
1: Well, I can tell you, you just t- took me to school. I learned so much.
0: <laughs> I
1: learned so much from from this conversation, and I am absolutely thrilled that you carved some time out of your busy schedule to come and spend just a little bit of time with us to talk about your site and tourism and museums in general, and offer us. Uh, some pearls of wisdom and suggestions about how we those of us in the museum community can make our sites better and how to better communicate to people in the community and to the and to the government uh, the politicians in, in particular about who we are and what we do and why we're important and the, the importance of their supporting what we're doing
0: well, yeah, i'm um, very very honored to do it any he- Anytime, uh, you know, we we always want to work with you, and I hope all of your listeners come see us in Springfield. If they want to learn more, we have uh, presidentlincoln.illinois.gov. I can tell you about the library and the museum. Uh, So check that out, and uh, we hope everyone will come see us in Springfield. We're also on Facebook, I should say.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: (laughs) I have to say that, for sure. Yes, yes.
1: I, well, Alan, uh, we want to thank you very, very much for spending time with us today and, and helping us to inform our listening audience about tourism and about the importance and the significance of museums across the globe, why they're important, and for those in the listening audience who are planning trips to America Uh, planning trips to the United States and specifically in Illinois, we want you to come and see us. Go to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. You've heard uh, the director giving you just an absolutely wonderful uh, description of who they are and what they do and the programs and that kind of thing. And we are absolutely certain that your visitor experience will be a memorable one. And I would like to ask the listening audience to join me in thanking Alan Lowe from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum for being our guest today. Once again, Alan, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. I was honored to do it. Great to talk to you.
1: Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger Magazine, United Auto Workers, Local 551, and CHU Chicago. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist, Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week. And last but not least, you the listening audience. Because without you, there would be no show. And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.